Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Can we start? I've got to take care of a business matter, um, but let's start. I, um, some strange things, or let me put that differently, stranger things are happening to me than usual. I think you're probably used to the strange things I'm assuming, but... Um, <laughs> I've got some things that I have to do here that don't relate directly to the text, but in, in one way um, do. So I want to take a, a few minutes before we start. So I really want to get going here because I want to see if we can get out by 11. Um, I keep failing on that, but I'm, I'm aiming for it. I'll, I, I will get better because I'm working at it. Um, would anybody like to include anybody in prayers this morning? I do. Um, Carol Tucker, who came to our class a couple of times, her husband Bill was diagnosed with cancer, and we just found out that he probably has less than two weeks to live. Oh, God. What's his last name? Tucker. Tucker. And his first name is Bill. Yep. Anything else? Um, my sister, Lisa, she has uh, strained her shoulder so she's not able to work and then she fell in front of physical therapy yesterday so let's pray that she's not such a klutz um it's got have control over things like that <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course but <laughs> one thing or another and i have a friend also before for marianne who has cancer but i need to add that she really doesn't have a good faith and that's the thing I'm praying for. Mary Ann. Mary Ann. She has cancer. It's The long-term prognosis is certainly not good. She's had a lot of intermediate, smaller things that they're able to work with her on. But she just doesn't have a faith. Yep. And keep praying for Darlene. Darlene. Severe pain after radiation from anal cancer. Gosh. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, the gift of yourself, particularly in Mass this morning, and your life itself that we carry within us. Um, you, um, you remind us that our bodies are temples, um, and so often the things that we do don't take care of our bodies, we take them so for granted. And, um, in some ways, we, in doing that, we push you off. Um, help all of us to be strengthened by your presence within us. And you call all of us to holiness and strengthen us in our efforts to answer your call, each one of us. Um, we're especially grateful for your words to us this morning in the Mass. Be with us all this day and everything that we do. Help all of us to bring you, make you visible, present in everything we do, particularly with each other. Um, <clears throat> Lois, is it? Uh, no, Bill Tucker. I'm sorry. Lois, 
I'm sorry, Bill is the Bill is the one Lois is the, the wife. Carol. Carol Carol Who's Lois? Somebody asked me for Lois. <laughs> sorry. I, no, sorry, no, you're I, I'm sorry. I'm, okay. Carol Tucker used to come to our class. And he, Bill is the and one. And Bill is her sorry, husband, okay, and okay. he's the one who yep. has cancer. Got it, sorry, okay. sorry. That's okay. Um we ask um for a special grace for Bill. Um if this is to be the end of his life, um, um, let it be a time of um, great consolation for him. Um, whatever the pains of letting go of this world, however great it is for any of it, any of us, be with him, help him to let go of it. Um, if a cure can be found, help him, help those um, find it and spare him. If that's not to happen, um, let this be a time of his growing closer to you in faith, um, and we ask a special blessing on his wife, sorry Debbie, Carol, Carol. Um, let it be a time of her growing closer to you to trust. These times of separation and death are so often violent to let go of the world when it's been our life for so long can't be easy and it's particularly hard for people who have held on to it. Let it be a time of letting go and help us all from, <coughs> these, from our awareness of these experiences and others to let go of the world, to prepare to meet you in everything that happens. Um, sorry, Lisa? Lisa. Um, <laughs> help steady Lisa um, um, and um, help her to heal. Um, ask for a special blessing for Mary and um, watch over her um, in her treatment and more especially open her heart and her mind. Um, go to her, let something happen that she can more fully open herself and trust in you. Um, Lynn. Conklin. Poor. She's been diagnosed with cancer. She's been with us. Yeah, Lynn. Be with Lynn. Um, watch over her. Um, let her find in this difficulty uh, a spur to grow closer to you. And Darlene, um, help her in her recovery. Um, steady her heart, too. Let this be so for all of us. Um, in the prayers that we offer you, it becomes so clear that we're all one body um, tied together, um, sharing in these afflictions. Um, help us not to forget all the things around us to be thankful for, to be grateful, to know that death is a part of our life, to make a place for it, so it's not so sometimes overwhelming. We offer all of these prayers um, in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. <coughs> if anybody, if anybody gets too cold, because I was just feeling the cold, I've got an extra shirt and I've got a sweatshirt here. Anybody? Oh, can we come back? I'm really sorry. I got. I didn't. I had something on my mind. That's how bad it's getting. I want to come back to prayers. Well, just take your time, Linda.
Um, in fact, here, I'll say it now while you're there so you don't have to. And ask a special blessing on Linda, help her recover her health. Um, we are glad to see her um, watch over her as she recovers. Help all of us to be careful of this flu that's going around um, to take care. Let your blessings be with her um, in her recovery. Amen. Um, before we start with Blake, the poetry reading for the day. I've got a um, couple of things to deal with. Um, um, that don't bear directly to the rate. Um, well, they do and they don't, but I've got to deal with them here. A word of encouragement. I really would like everybody to hear this, too. You know, you know how serious I get about reading because you all know that if you don't read it, you, it, the participation can't be as full. And I know that and I've not wanted your not being able to read or keep up, keep you from coming. I, I just don't want that to happen. Um, I, my sense is that almost everybody's behind, big surprise. It's a, it's a um, it's not Shakespeare, the language isn't hard, but it's it's not 20th century Hemingway. It's, you know, it's not an easy, simple style. There's a little bit of the British complexity to um, his style. Um, and it's, even though the chapters are short, I think, and easy to read, there's a lot. And there's a lot to hold on to. So um, don't get discouraged. Um, I, I've been aware that people are getting behind. And I, I want to try to um, do something with that. As you know, I, Suzanne and I, um, she's been tremendously helpful. Um, we're trying to put together the study guide, and we're always a week behind. So, um, Remember, everywhere, everywhere through Moby Dick, we keep getting all these omens, signs. Um, telephones didn't exist in Melbourne's day, but so we all have to give some thought to what just happened here. Um, um, where was I going? Hmm? Yeah, God, it's really bad. Um, I think, and we've been struggling to get these study guides out knowing that they're always current with the chapter you should have read when we meet. So I think what I'm going to do is slow down, but my, my concern is this, that um, I don't want to drag this out for you because we've got other readings. So I, I, um, even, even if it's a little bit hard, I'd say, um, know that I'm aware of it. Um, <coughs> my own aim here is, is not that you know this the way the students would be required to at a school where I'd be giving tests and I'd be writing papers on it. Um, but to take it seriously, because I, I more, the longer we're in this, the more I'm, I'm glad to be doing this because it makes me aware 
of how much he speaks to current problems, it's going to be the second thing I talked about in a minute. It's opened up some um, a can of worms here in some way that I want to that I want to get to. But anyway, I think what I'm going to do is try to slow down a little bit, and um, we will get the the study guide for the next section out. And I may go back, but but if I don't know that I know that it's okay. My concern is to try to cover as many chapters as I can to get you in the book, to give you a sense of what's going on um, so that you can appreciate it and hopefully go back and read it. You know, because I, I think you all know this by now that when you... Push. There. When you, when you read a book like this in class and you're pushing, there's a lot you won't get, but there's a lot we never get on the first reading of a book anyway, um, because you don't have the whole in mind. Once you have the whole and you go back and look at parts, all the parts make so much more sense. That can't happen on the first time, because you don't have the whole in mind. So learning to read for holes has been an essential thing all along. I, I can't do anything about that. My hope is, truly, that after you do this, that one day, you know, you'll commit yourself to reading this and in a couple of weeks go through it and you'll find it's much easier and you'll, hopefully you'll enjoy it more. But anyway, we'll slow down a little bit, but I want to be careful. Um, we've got some works ahead of us to do and I've got to bring this whole thing, I think, to a close as much as I'll regret doing that. But anyway, that's the first. Second. Um, I raised some questions a couple of weeks ago. Boy, is it cold in here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would anybody like, are you okay? You want? It's fine. Um, it's cold early. I'll take it. Good, here. You want something warmer? That's here, let me give you this. Um, I have more in the car. Here. Thank you very much. Um, I, I raised some questions a couple of weeks ago um, that I was a little bit nervous about raising because they don't they don't come out of the book directly, but the more that I think about those questions, um, the more important they are to me, and the more important they are for the catechetical purposes of this class. And I hadn't realized it at the time. Um, but now I've got to deal with them, and I'm actually grateful, even though it, it may cause some awkwardness here. Um, it wasn't until this time that I really began to feel a catechetical responsibility, a responsibility <coughs> for the catechesis of the, what, we're, what we're doing. As you know, all along, my concern has been to, to, tr to try to show Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. That was the purpose of the class. So when we went back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid pagan epics, I mean, where are you, how are you going to find Christ? Well, I hope those of you who have been with, with us all along see that there's an amazing way in which those pagans had intimations of Christ. <coughs> I mean, once you put it all together, to me it's sort of stunning. All it does for me is um, reinforce this notion of the Logos always present in creation. So that was good. Um, what I've done, the, the, one of the questions that I asked the last couple of weeks um, was if you take away the sacraments from a Christian people, 
um, is it possible for that people to sustain its beliefs? I, I can't answer that definitively, but my own answer to that from what I know historically is that a people can't, it just can't. The opening chapters of Moby Dick um, are a critique of a Christianity that's <coughs> failing. The, the Christianity that Melville reveals to us is a Christianity that's, that's declined into a moral code. It's why I asked the question. I didn't intend to. I wasn't planning on it. As I was reading, it came to me, and it's, it's hanging over me right now. Um, some, some people raised questions in, in the Monday evening class that made me put together some materials. So here's where this is going. Um, that's a serious question to me, and I, when we finish up Moby Dick, I'm going to suggest some conclusions about that that I hadn't even thought about ever in my life before when I've read Moby Dick. Because Amer American culture is very much on my mind all the time, where we are as a people, what's happening with us, and, and our faith. And in amazing ways, Moby Dick has... Um, has led to some insights on my part that, that I hadn't had before and I want to share them with you. But at the end, you know, what is he bringing back to us? Um, we've talked about the fact that America was a Protestant founding. The, the, the people who came here were extraordinary in their courage and in their faith. <clears throat> By mid-19th century, that faith is in the wane. It's disappearing. And Melville's answering it. So is Hawthorne and Scarlet Letter. So something's happening that I think is important for us to look at. And it seems to me one of the, one of the ways in which, at least for us, Catholics or not, um, it, it should raise serious questions about our own faith. You know since Dante, I've been, I mean, I've been putting the Protestant world and Catholic worlds together since the beginning and trying to make distinctions, partly because it's in the nature of these works and partly because it's in the nature of this class. We've come to, as a largely Catholic, I mean, Sue's here, and I, I bless her heart, she's just, I mean, her courage to me is incredible. I'm not kidding. So, I mean, I can't tell you how much I admire your courage um, to hear me putting the Protestant world up and, and the Protestants getting the worst of it for the most part, um, for you to... Me too. Oh, good. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Good. Before Tom and Linda and Don Okay. they're probably okay. looking at me saying, when are you going to raise your hand? Okay. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad that's out. Anyway, I've been saying, and I hope fairly, that Catholics are in trouble. The, it, I mean, when we did the Divine Comedy, I said, with no scruples, 99% of the people in hell are Catholics. And the scripture reading of that is Christ saying, you know, people who say Christ, Christ, will, I will have nothing to do with them. So there's a difference between a nominal Christian, Protestant or Catholic, and somebody living a faith. And that's been a serious concern of mine all along. But this, this other question seems to me so important now in the context of Melville because we're, we're much closer in time than we were with Dante, right? This is, this is much closer to us. This is 19th century. We can I think we can identify. This is New England. It's New Bedford. It's Massachusetts. It's New York. It's, a, it's an industrial enterprise going out to sea. Um, we're not in Dante's... This is a commercial republic. Dante speaks to us. 
This speaks so much more immediately to us and so much more immediately to a Protestant world. That's why I've been raising Catholic questions all along. I've tried to do it I mean, carefully. I don't, I don't want to intrude things on this text. You know how, how much I hate that. I, I don't like it when people use texts for their own purposes. My concern is to try to be as faithful as I can to this book. And so when I've raised the, the Catholic questions, it's always indirectly because he keeps hinting at things. We don't, it's hard to come to any definitive answer about how he, where Catholicism is for Melville. But this question of the sacraments is a serious one. Um, and it's all the more serious for me the more that I think about it now that I'm reading Melville again. Can a culture sustain its faith without the sacraments? I'm raising that seriously in a Catholic context. We came together for that. It's a catechetical issue. And I'm beginning to understand some things because I've had to look at some things now that I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of before. Um, so what I've done is put together a packet. It's huge. You all got these letters, right, the Suzanne? That no. note to you all? Yes. The catechism on a... I'd like you all to read these. Doc, you have a... Can you get a scratch piece of paper to hand around to everybody? Do you have the tablet? Here, I've got this done. I've got two notes to you. Note, note Catechism on Emergent Occasions. Mm -hmm. I love that title. John Dunn wrote this book called um, Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. It's a lovely piece of his. It's the piece in which he, he has that famous statement, no man is an island. It comes from that piece. I've, I've always loved that phrase. Um, something emerged in the class that goes to a catechetical <coughs> question. I wasn't planning on doing this, but here it is. Um, I, I want to put this question out for everybody to think about. I don't want to take it up in class, except if, if we need to, just briefly, because it's not to the point of, I mean it is, but not directly to the literature. What I've done is put together a packet that um, includes pieces on the sacraments and on um, heresies. It's just a very brief um, review and a list of some of the more important heresies that the church has had to take on <coughs> historically from the beginning. The reason for doing that is, is but by the way, this is not required, you don't have to do this, I'm gonna pass it around, you can look at it, and I'm gonna ask you if you, want, if you want to get it indicated on a tablet so that we can print them off. If you want them, it's gonna be expensive, or, or parts of it, okay? Included in this packet, is a little is a short section on the sacraments themselves, what they are. Um, early church heresies, um, and there's a a, a a larger section that's an elaboration on those heresies. Um, um, there's a study guide on Calvin. There's a piece on Luther, and there's a study guide that um, I had written ages ago as a part of the study guide I did for Angelicum. It's an online. A homeschool program. That the St. Thomas section is the St. Thomas piece is 51 pages long. Um, there's no reason for you guys to read this. 
So I'm just going to pass it around. If you're interested in having any of this, I'll send around a tablet. Put your name, everybody put your name, whether you, and just indicate whether you want something, and if so, what. If you want the whole packet, just say whole packet. If you want parts of them, like there's a, a short study guide on Calvin, short study guide on, or a short section on Luther, things like that. There's one really important section on the sacraments on this, in this, um, this large piece called Important Heresies. This, Important Heresies. Everybody should know these, Protestant or Catholic, doesn't matter. Everybody should know these Be because they show the life of the church struggling to answer the ways people misread Christ and try to make him something he's not. It's as simple as that. So it's a list of the heresies. It's an elaboration on the short list. There's another one with just a shorter list. It goes into them in a little bit more detail. And then there's a section on the sacraments and why it's important to be aware of that. Um, my assumption here is that most Catholics take communion without thinking about what it is because they're not even aware of the different readings people have had that, um, that were heretical of making the sacrament something that it's not. I think you all know that for most of the Protestant world, almost the entire, except for the high Anglicans, and I'm not even sure where the uh, uh, Episcopalians are in this now, but I think the high Anglicans and Episcopalians look at the sacrament as the real presence. But there's a fundamental difference between, say, a Lutheran understanding of the real presence and a Catholic. And I don't think most people are aware of it at all. One of the, one of the parishioners in the Monday evening class I think was really upset because she said all Protestants take communion, or the, or the greater, the majority of them do. But her understanding of communion was very, very different, radically different from a Catholic's understanding of communion. And I'm not sure that Catholics are aware of that. I don't know. But now that the problem's been opened, <laughs> I've got to at least speak to it. So, because it goes to this question, we're looking at a failed Christianity in the beginning of Moby Dick. What does it mean? Are we going to treat this just as a work of literature? It is. If there is a prophetic element, one of the, one of the claims that I'm making, I mean, one of the ways in which we're being asked to look at this work to see if there's something we can learn to strengthen us in our faith, if there is, what is it? What's the reason? Can we talk, can we understand something about our own faith by looking at this? So all along, it's been easy for me to talk about the Iliad, the Odyssey, even the Divine Comedy. Here, I'm finding a very different, a very different kind of problem. So I want to put this out. Um, I, I, we put this, these packets together. Um, just, Doc, can you can just look at them if you if you're if you're if you're interested, say so, and if not, don't worry. It's not a requirement. This is not a class. Here, then you take a look and pass it then, and I'll pass this handout sheet, this tablet sheet, with just indicate if you want the packet. Um, or not. The, the one that I'm, oh, and I think I took this, the one that I'm really concerned about is important heresies. The others, you know, may not, you may be interested or not, I can't, I can't say, but 
This is the whole pack. But we've already got these pages. The right. first two. <laughs> we've, already got, we've already got the first two pages. Those are just yours. First two pages in the pack out packet we handed out. Just letter, they're letters to you. The other are these pieces on sacraments, heresies, um, Luther, Calvin. Um, so is that clear? So um, the, the question that I would put to you, I mean the other things you can look at St. Thomas or Calvin or Luther, but the major question I'd put to you is What's the nature of the sacraments? Who cares? Does it matter? Um, is it relevant to Moby Dick? You know, and if, um, if those are concerns of yours, and you would be interested in parts of these, um, indicate so we can do it, um, because we, we're gonna have to run them off, not today, but we'll make them available next week for those of you who want them, okay? Okay, let's start. Is that clear? I'm a little bit amazed at this. I think of myself as, I'm a convert. I think of myself as being very conscientious about these things, but I'm realizing now, having looked into the sacraments, that there are, there are things that I've not understood well, and I'd like to make them clear in this class at some point. Let's start. Can we take a look at Blake? Just look at these on your leisure. At your leisure. Can you pull out the Blake? Blake poem. Mm -hmm. Remember that Blake is the first of the great romantics and he's also the one most explicitly prophetic. Remember I read that opening poem from um, Songs of Innocence, Piping Down the Valley, remember? Um, he begins piping and he meets this child and the, and the child weeps to hear him play. The child is an angel and the, the child, the angel says, put your pipe away and sing and he sings a song and the, he's, the angel, the child is so moved again that um, um, he weeps. It, it shows the power of poetry to open our hearts. Um, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, in our human nature, that we cry when we're sad, and we cry in joy. Isn't that strange? When we're in joy, it, it typically uh, something opens our hearts in a way, and, and we cry. It's like our hearts open. And the angel says to him, put your song away and write because writing is, um, can be disseminated more universally, and um, it uses words which are more conceptual. So the word speaks more conceptually to our understanding of things. Um, 
an instrument and song appeal more directly to our emotional life, yeah? It can, it can arouse our emotions. But using words not only arouses our emotions or can arouse our emotions, but it also um, opens concepts. We conceive of things, we see things um, more clearly through words. So that opening poem is, is really a poem about his calling as a poet. And we saw those poems, um, those, or at least those passages from the larger poems from Jerusalem and Milton. Um, he, is, he is a poet grieving at, at, the, um, at what he's seen in his home nation. England has turned away from its faith. Um, all of those images of an industrial world taking over those satanic mills. And then he, um, like one of the prophets from the Old Testament, bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire, bring me my spear, O clouds unfold, bring me my chariot of fire. He wants to bring this prophetic word. Remember I told you last time, he, he associates Christ with the imagination, the, 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 the creative source of all things is the word, Christ. So today, let's finish Blake. I'd like to read Tiger in London. Turn to the page three, the last poem, London. Remember I said that for most of the romantics, reason is a lost power. The sciences have usurped it, which is a sad thing, because um, the, the reason that the sciences used, used does not exhaust rationality. There's more to reason than what the sciences do with it, even though they think this is reason itself. Um, Blake looks at reason as a not good thing, and the laws that come out of it, worse. St. Thomas would say um, laws derive from reason, that the heart of all laws is the working of reason. Laws are a product of reason. Um, for him, it was really important that we use reason well because it would produce good laws. So you can't separate them. Blake is looking at a London and finding the signs of the bad reason everywhere. The chartered streets, charters, grid lines, locks. I mean, to talk about overregulation in our country, think about what Blake would have done with, I mean, he's looking at a, I wonder, in the chartered street. We talk about overregulation. It's almost like a gridlock has been put over a people. And you can't move anymore. Um, so that laws become, they don't serve humans, they become oppressive. They oppress them, they beat down something good in mankind. So instead of reason working well to help people become better, it, it actually works, or they actually, the laws work against us. So, so in London, he's giving us an image of um, reason gone wild. And it ends with this image of the, um, the evil of reason working at marriages. That there's something even wrong with the lawfulness of marriages. That there, there's something so oppressive in a marriage that a man has to go to prostitutes to answer what marriage won't. So there's not an aspect of modern human life in which reason um, isn't at work harming. Okay, this is his London. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow. The streets are chartered. You know that rivers become 
um, a grid for economic development. So even rivers now are, are only as good as they're useful to promote business. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark on every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind fold manacles I hear. There's that mind forge. There's that beautiful image of reason, right? The, for, the mind forged manacles that reason is producing all these manacles. It's the nature, it's from Blake, it's the nature of the intellect. <coughs> the answer for him is the imagination to undo that. In every voice, in every band, the mind forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. The church should be taking care of its chimney sweepers, but the chi chimney sweepers crying, the church is becoming blackening. As a early Protestant, Blake's attitude like Milton's, was that any established religion, any established religion was inherently bad. And it's ironic because the Protestant church is becoming established. He's, so he's, he's radical in that sense. He's even speaking out, out against the Protestant established church. Church isn't taking care of its chimney sweepers and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood. That, well, I mean, that's sort of ironic because soldiers are put their lives at risk. But here it's an image of, of a soldier hapless abandoned by the military, the nation which he's intended to serve. So there's nothing good in this image of London, a modern city. Tiger, just a, a quick note on this. Imagine being in an African forest and turning a corner and seeing a tiger. What would your response be? I'm, I'm really serious. If any of you have been frightened by an animal, I'm, I'm assuming most of you have, I don't know. If any of you have been frightened by an animal, imagine yourself suddenly face to face with a tiger. <clears throat> Not a dog, more like a bear, you know, if you're in the country and suddenly there's a bear in front of you. Did I tell you that story of the camping, the camping trip? <laughs> the camping trip, when I had this experience? We lived in California and there were all these stories, current, of uh, bear maulings and people killed by bears in Montana and in, um, in California and Yosemite. Um, and Dick Bloomer, a dear friend of ours, asked me if I would join him on a trip. It was going to be his first camping trip, I think with his daughter, Katie. I don't think it was their son, Jimmy, but I think their daughter. He asked if I'd come along because we were close friends and I said, sure. But all these stories were going about, they were in the newspaper all the time and I can remember thinking how heroic I'd be if I met a bear. Um, I, don't, I don't know if any of you guys do that sort of thing, you know, but I thought how brave I would be in, because um, I was this tough athlete young man, and of course I'd be brave. That night, after we went to sleep, I, I was well asleep, I don't know what time it was, 1 or 12 noon, or I mean 12 midnight or 1, I don't remember. I heard this ticking, and it Finally, it brought me fully awake, and I looked over, and Dick Bloomer was throwing pebbles at me. He was probably, 
15 feet away from me with Katie, I think. And I looked over and he pointed away at the table where our food was. And I looked over there and there was a bear. So the bear was probably just beyond where Don is, maybe so 20 feet away was this bear. What was my response? I pull, pulled the sleeping bag over my head and went down to the bottom of it. Absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified. God. So much for romantic egotism. Oh God, it scares me to think about that. We, we, were in, we were in Alaska, climbing up into the mountains, and waterfalls, beautiful, and all these bushes of berries. And then I realized we could, we could see, we could encounter a bear up here. And all I thought is, I just have to run faster than London. With Linda on your back, right? Make sure there's lots of berries. God. Did you all get the sign-up thing? Is everybody signed up? Okay. Imagine if you were in Africa and you turned the corner and saw a tiger. What would be your response? I'm assuming it would be stark terror. I don't, but you'll have to. Uh, here's 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 the question. If you looked at this tiger and felt that, what would you feel if you looked at the idea in Platonic terms? Because the forms for Plato, St. Augustine said what Plato called the forms, which are the original sources of all three created things, they're the archetypes, bedness, man, trees, you know, whatever the, the, the essence of all things, the original archetype that was the source of all created things. As Plato, St. Augustine said what Plato understood as the forms, the, the creative archetypes of all things, were the seminals, the seminal ideas in God's mind. Now, if you turned a corner and saw a, a real physical tiger, imagine your, your response. Imagine seeing the form of tiger in God's mind. To look on that, the dread, um, the, I would assume would be overwhelming. To look into God's mind, to see that archetype, the seminal, the creative things, okay? This is not about an earthly tiger. This is about the archetype. It, it's, it's conditioned on the forest of the night. It belongs to the darkness. It's, it's, in, its condition is darkness. It's a part of its nature. So what Blake's looking at here is not a tiger. It's the archetype, the eternal type. And if you, would, if you could imagine looking at a real tiger, imagine seeing this, okay? So Blake has a platonic side to him. This is, this is his awareness, his poem about one of those creative archetypes, okay? The tiger. <clears throat> now remember, if you can imagine an earthly tiger, imagine this. So by burning bright in the forest of the night, where are those forests? Forests of the night? These are conditioned on another world. This is the eternal condition. So he's talking about something beyond our range of seen beyond our senses okay but it's burning bright imagine experiencing that burning bright blinding 
overwhelming in heat? I don't, you know. The tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distance, deeps, or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? Who could do, who could make something like that original archetype? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? Notice how he's taking all these earthly analogies, but applying them to the creator in that moment of creation, what goes on in that moment. In what furnace, what the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors class? Who could handle that? Tiger. When the stars threw down their spears, what does that refer to? And watered heaven with its tears, the angels, the fall of the angels. Okay. When the stars threw down their spears, remember a third from Revelation, a third of heaven fell. So. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who make the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? How close to this is Satan? You know, if, if the contrast here is with the lamb, it's opposite then what was God's response when he created the angels and Lucifer, the great? Did he smile his word to see? Did he who make the land make thee? Because he's talking about something overwhelmingly terrifying, dreadful here. Okay? Now I'm going to read it once through without all the commentary so you can enjoy it. Okay? Because if, if you don't know these things, there's a lot you'd miss when you read the poem. It's just, and yet it's a powerful poem. So, Tiger by Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when the heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Extraordinary, extraordinary, just amazing. Notice what a musician he is. I mean, I don't it, it not only hear the rhythm, but the, the, the rhymes, the beauty, the lines, the rhythm of the line, and the, the way it builds to a climax, and the way he brings that climax to a close. Tiger, tiger, burn. You can feel a conclusion coming. It's like, a, it's like Bach or Beethoven, at their greatest, what he's doing. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. What a beautiful poem. Remember what I said the last week, too, a couple weeks. There's not a word in here a sixth grader doesn't understand. It's so simple, and yet it's so powerful. 
It should encourage us. We don't have to be. What gets in the way of artistic activity is our egos. Think we have to be truly, isn't it? We have to do this great stuff, so we don't. We end up doing nothing. I hope I'm shaking up egos here. Means <laughs> you all have to get out and write poems now. Okay, let's quick review because I want to. I want to get to the readings for today, even if you even if you haven't read them. We talked about the plot, remember, and I gave an example of um, the Iliad and other plots, but, um, and remember I said that according to Aristotle, all great, all great plots turn on the peripatia. It's the action of the peripatia, the reversal, the turn, and the recognition that comes with it. So when we look at all great works of literature, what we see is an affirmation of reason, of logos. That there is a reason at work in the plot. Now stop and think about this for a second. If that's true, and art's an imitation of life, then reason is at work everywhere in life, whether we see it or not. And that means if, if reason's at work, so is the logos, so is Christ. We've been Every work that we've been looking at has been a revelation in some way of Christ at work in our lives, even if we don't see him. And I suggested last time that the, the opening section, as you know, is Melville's critique of, of the Protestant New England seaboard world, that culture, and it's dying. Um, and the, the first section, Out to Sea, was what I was calling a setup. Um, that he's beginning to look at things in a way that shows he's becoming aware of the analogy to being. That all being consists of these interconnections between things because they all come from the same God. Or they, they, could, they would not all relate. Yeah? Because every chapter shows he takes some physical aspect of the world on ship in the ocean, in the whale, and finds an analogy between that and our human condition. So he's answering this modern tendency, particularly in the sciences, to see that things are not related, that it's atomic, they're all separated or isolated. That a matter of fact, everything is related by affinities. So what we are, are experiencing is, even though he's committed himself to, a to Ahab's quest, he himself is learning. We, we almost don't read a chapter after the quarter deck scene where he's not showing that he's learning something about the world. So reason is at work in this, in Melville's Moby Dick. Um, early on, we, um, if you just take a look quickly at, at um, it's chapters 55 through 57, if you just look at the table of contents, 55 through 57, monstrous pictures of whale, less erroneous pictures of whales, of whales in paint. And he has three successive chapters dealing with the way people represent whales. He shows one in which the representations aren't very good, and then he presents another where he says less erroneous, and then he gives a chapter on how they're presented in print and for paint and teeth and things like that. Why is he doing that? to gain our trust, to show 
that he's aware of the way the way in which people two things the way in which people represent reality what's wrong with it which means the way they don't read it well why is he doing this so that at the end when he or yeah when we get to the end and Moby Dick takes down the Pequot destroys it he's been giving this wild sort of fabulous representation of this whale story and most of the people in Melville's time were critical of him they thought he was outrageous in fact he came under attack by the church for presenting these sort of blasphemous things so the reason he's doing this is to is to gain our trust to show that there are bad ways of representing things and he shows us he's aware of them um, if he can make that kind of distinction, then we should be careful of what he does. And I think we would be more trusting of what he does because he's, he's shown us he's aware of the difference. Um, we've seen, I went over some of the chapters where he talks about the world around him in ways that relate back to himself. So he's beginning to be open to being. And it's amazing to me if we, if we put the whole thing together, if you read all of Moby Dick, it, it's interesting, it's almost as if there's not an aspect of our life that he hasn't touched on and shown its relationship to a whole and to ourselves. So that by the time we finish the book, we find ourselves standing in this amazing world of being with all of its interconnections, and we're a part of it. So in, in, the, in the, now remember, in the beginning, what we see is a group of isolatos. Men are isolated. They're not connected at all. People, there, there's no, we don't see a friendship anywhere. You've got human beings moving through the world alone. They're isolados. He says that of everybody. All the men on board ship are called isolados. They're from everywhere in the world. By the end of the book, we've got this picture that everything is interconnected. So it's almost like he's laying the foundations for friendship. And, and it's got to be strengthened in our mind because one of the dearest friendships in the book is the friendship between him and Queequeg. Even if Queequeg's dead, he was a dear friend. We know that Queequeg would have risked his life. And in some ways he's paying tribute to him because he's telling this wonderful story of how dear he was. Remember that night when the two of them were together smoking? He hated smoking. Mm -hmm. Next night he's smoking with him. He said, I felt my splintered heart soften. Um, and, and he even worships with Queequeg the next day against his Presbyterian brethren. Um, and then we looked um, briefly at the town host story at the very end. Remember, it's the counter story to the Ahab story. When the Pequod meets the town ho, it's the, it's the second gam. Um, we learned that um, Tashtigo had, had talked with one of the town ho sailors and heard this story about steel kilt and Radney. Remember, Steelkilt um, was this very tough-minded, honorable sailor, and Radney was one of the mates. And Radney told him to sweep the deck because the, the ship was taking water. And Steelkilt refused. And there was a mutiny, and all of the mutineers were captured and put in a hole and then starved to force them to obedience. And Steelkilt was the last one to come up, and when they all were on board, they, they were going to be um, whipped and the captain was about to whip Steelkilt, and Steelkilt turned to him and said, 
you touch me, I will kill you. You can hear you can hear how some men would say that in a way that would test a captain's courage, either as the courage to back it up or because what you're dealing with is a man who means it. I said, I'll kill you. The captain turns the lash over to Radney and Radney whips him and, and Sukilt says um, he'll pay for it. Um, days later, he's putting together this ball that's heavy, intending to use it to crush Radney's skull. On, on the day of the evening that he intended to kill Radney, um, they sight a whale. It turns out to be Moby Dick. They lower for it and Radney is killed. And there's that beautiful passage in there that I read last time where he says that heaven intervened, that there was a, a reversal of providence, that he actually stepped in to save a man from damning himself. Ahab never hears that story. So it's the counter story. Remember, Ahab is convinced that there's this evil in the world, and it's embodied in Moby Dick. That, that there's something evil in nature that, that has at its end to hurt him, to wound him. And here's a story, the counter story, of a man actually being saved from damnation by Moby Dick. So now we've got two very, very different ways of reading the world. Um, and Ahab knows nothing about it. Um, and the other, the other interesting, amazing, two more interesting facts about that townhouse story that I mentioned. One is that when, when Ishmael tells the story, he lets us know that the version he's telling us is the version he told the Spaniards in Peru. And why does Melda do that? Again, to cover his tracks, because it, as you read along, you'll discover there are chapters presented to us from Ishmael that Ishmael could have had no way of experiencing. We'll go down below deck one evening and, and we'll get into the cabin and he, how, how could Ishmael have been there? There's no way he could have. So in terms of modern standards, Melville is blowing narrative technique away because Ishmael wasn't there and yet Ishmael's telling the story. So we can discredit Ishmael. I'm, I don't want to take that up. I, I think there was a greater story for Melville to tell and it was more important than these fine points about a narrative, of an artist covering his track. I mean, that's, that's an, that should be an encouragement for artists because we can get so fastidious and we lose greater things because we are. Melville didn't. He, he told a story, even though some of the chapters can't be accounted for. But here, at least, he's given us a reason. He, we, we learned that he got it from Testigo, who got it from the town of Sailor. And we're getting it in the version that he told Spaniards. Now, why did he even put that in the narrative? He didn't have to do that. We, he could have just told the story. Because at the end of the story, these Spaniards, I'm assuming they're Catholics, say, unbelievable, unbelievable. Go get a Bible and get a priest and swear in the Bible because none of them believe him. That's how unbelievable the story would have been to the these are these are Catholics. So they get a priest, and remember they have to go into the shadows to, to do this. So um, in in lots of ways, Melville's doing lots of things here. He's covering his tracks with respect to narrative technique, but he's also introducing this Catholic question again that. Um, here's this improbable story going on that a whale saves a man from being damned? Are you kidding? So Melville's always putting this on the verge of the improbable, the unlikely. It's really important to see this because the sciences have a mastery 
in the, in the intellectual field right now, and Melville's flying right in the face of it. Because imagine, I mean, lots of people would have called these, these stories, so many of the stories he's describing, telling, superstitious. They would have seemed more superstitious against the scientific background. Because he, he keeps playing with both of them, these scientific representations of things, these sort of mythic and probable. What's he doing for us? I, th I think with part, I mean, my, one of my answers to that is one of the things he's doing is to help get us over this black-white mindset that there are things to learn from the sciences and from myth because myths can give us things that the sciences cannot. One of the things that Melville's doing is constantly taking us into shadowy places through reason. Yeah, he's, he's always taking us into these, super, these areas that we can call religious and using reason to just penetrate their borders to get us inside to see that there are shadowy things going on um, in a way that the sciences can't. So Melville's helping us become deeper readers, better readers, um, to not get into black-white mindsets. And then I ask you those two questions um, that seem to me really major, major questions for us to an answer. Um, um, I, I don't want to take them up until the very last class, and the very last class it's going to be a free-for-all because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put this away and open the class and see what happens. But the first question, remember, was if Ahab is an image of something American, um, and I'm saying quintessentially American as he's tragic, what does he image for us that, that all of us as Americans character? I tried, I mean, you know me, I try to qualify these things all the time. There's not a question in my mind that these things exist universally in the world. Pointing a finger, blaming, wanting to get back, those are universal qualities. Blaming other people, wanting to hurt somebody when we've been wounded. Ahab's been wounded, he wants to get back. But this has a tragic dimension and it's focused and it's on an American enterprise and he's the leader. He's an image of something that I think is inherent in the American culture. I want to come back to this in a pretty serious way in our last class. I mean, I, I, we've got to speak about this. What is it? Why American? Um, does it take us back to our founding? What do we learn about our founding from, this, from that question? At the same time, look at Ishmael. Is Ishmael American? Remember, he's the outcast. He doesn't belong to this world. Ishmael's the outcast person. Is he coming from outside this American culture? Does he belong to it? Is there something in him quintessentially American? Or is he the antidote? Is he answering it? At the end of this story, when we're done, what are we going to do with those questions? I mean, where are we? So that's a, for me, that's a major question. If, if these works are prophetic in showing us things we don't want to see about ourselves, and you heard me harping on this, if we don't learn to see ourselves in Iago and Othello, who's the most evil character I've ever met in literature, then we're not reading well. We've got to learn to see these things. Dante took us into hell. There was nothing pretty about hell. Every aspect of it was horrifying. If we don't learn to see those things in the depths of our character, how in the world do we ever get out of it? So um, what does Ahab image in us? And how do we look at Ishmael in that same context? 
And the second question was this question that led me to put together all this, this, you know, these packets on heresies and sacraments. If you take sacraments out of a Christian world, can that Christian world survive? Or will it decline into a moral code? Because what we see in New England is a moral code. If any of you go back to the beginnings and you read about the, you know, the, the Winthrops and the, 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 the founders of our country, they were dynamic, um, fierce believers. I mean, the, the first countries. And, and, and they persecuted people. They had witch hunts. I mean, they took their Christianity absolutely seriously. Um, so the, the beginnings were pretty intense. This, this was a people absolutely dedicated to God absolutely sincere in what they were doing. By 19th century, this is what we're seeing. What happened? How do we, how do we, is there something for us to learn about ourselves and what Mill was looking at? So this large question is really important. If you take the sacraments away, can a culture hold on to its faith? To answer that question, we have to look at what the sacraments are and, and what they're not. I mean, that's outside of the immediate aim of this course, but in some ways it's not. If this course is catechetical, I've got to address that. I wasn't planning to do this, but there's no way I can now, so I'm going to come back to this. You guys may want to stay away on that day. <laughs> Actually, it'd be good if you would be here. Because <laughs> be, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm going to, I want to do this because it speaks immediately to our beliefs as Christians, Catholic or Protestant. Know? But I want to I want to try to do this and put it when we finish with Go Down Moses. I want to try to do this and put it in the context of all that we're doing: the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, to understand what these sacraments mean. So, even though I hadn't intended on doing this, I want to do it. But I want to try to do it in the context of literature. So I don't know what's going to come out of that. But at least you're warned. At least you're warned. Okay. Okay. This week, quick. Um, Two facts about the plot. Even though the focus has been on um, Ishmael since the quarter deck and Ahab getting everybody to commit themselves to his quest, every chapter has been on the part of Ishmael um, offering his reflections, his meditations, his intuitions, his insights on what's going on and the larger meaning of these things. A whale. A, a, a line, a monkey rope, a tail, you know, whatever, greed, greed, whatever it is, sharks, he's, he's presenting something that actually exists in the world and presents it in a way that makes us aware that there are analogies with other things. That's what he's been doing. But two things are happening here to be aware of. One is, um, that we learn that Ahab is coming more and more under Fadala's power. Um, turn to page 387. This is chapter 73.
This in some ways goes right to the heart of what I've been talking about here. Take a look at 387. Um, Stubb and Flask kill a right whale and they're talking about the whale. And Fadala um, comes up, um, middle of 387. Now, remember this point that I've been making all along. It's, it's what led to this question about the sacraments, actually, for me. Why, why nobody can resist Ahem. Um, I hope everybody felt the force of that. Here's a whole ship with a man taking it over um, and going against the actual end, the purpose that everybody had signed up for, and yet nobody resists him. Starbuck is the only one who speaks up, and he's cowed. Why does nobody, this is why I brought up the sacraments. This is not a small thing for me. This is actually frightening to me. Um, and, and, I, and I'm frightened, I mean, not just for myself, but a whole people. Because we, we see, we, Father's talking about it in North Korea. He just came back from North Korea, watching a whole people cave in. We've, historically, we know that there, there are countries that absolutely cave in as a people to what's going on. Nobody on board has the power to resist him. And this is a sort of comic presentation of that what do you want to, accommodation, whatever you want to call it, on page 387. They're talking about the whales and killing it, um, and then um, Stubb says, did you ever see any person wearing mounting for the devil, mourning, wearing mourning for the devil? And if the devil has a latchkey to get into the admiral's cabin, don't you suppose he can crawl into a porthole? Tell me that, Mr. Flask. How old do you suppose Fidal is, Stubb? Do you see that main top, main mast there, pointing to the ship? Well, that's the figure one. Now take all the hoops in the Pequot's hold and string them along in a row with that mast for aughts. Do you see? Well, that wouldn't begin to be Fidal's age. If he's evil, he's timeless. Okay. Now, all of this is presented comically, but remember, we've talked about this. Whatever's going on with the nobles, in some way, is going on with the common. We saw this in Shakespeare, in every one of his plays. Um, string them all together. Well, that wouldn't begin to be Fidala's age. Nor all the coopers in creation couldn't shove hoops enough to make aughts enough. But see here, Stubb, I thought you a little bit mosted just now that you meant to give Fidala a sea toss. And if you got a good chance, now if he's so old as all those hoops of yours come to, and if he's going to live forever, what good will it do to pitch him over? But is this a Satan figure, live forever? Hmm. I mean, we can't look past it. This is comic, but we shouldn't. This, remember when we talked about Antigonus in Winter's Tale? That you can't ignore the comic stuff of what goes on because it's revealing, it's like mirror images. We're, we're getting another perspective of something similar. Can you throw an evil man overboard and expect to drown him? Give him a good ducking anyhow, but he'd crawl back. Duck him again and keep ducking him. What's their answer to evil? I mean, this is playful. Do they even begin to see the implications of this? Throw him in, throw him back again. They have no concept of what they're talking about. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. They're not going to do anything to this guy. If they, I mean, one of them is saying throw him in, the other says throw him back because he's going to keep coming back. Um, is that a profound naivete? 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Tom. Because if you if you look at Shakespeare's plays, all of the all of the fools, the comic characters, reveal things that the lords, the intellectuals, never see, and that the common people don't themselves. You know that there's always this logos. There's always some profound reality available to us. Do we see it? Who sees it? The poets. I mean, they're the ones who are showing us to wake up. Um, then, um, where's that? The, um, there's a passage in here where he says that he um, Stubbs says that he believes that Fadala is making um, wants to get um, Ahab's soul here in the middle of 388. And what will he do with the tail stub? Do with it, sell it for an ox whip when we get home. What else? Now, do you mean what he said to have been saying all along? Stub mean or not mean here? We're to ship. Um, Oh, Are you it. talking about where he kidnapped? I mean, where he says, "Do you suppose he's going to make a bargain?" He's, he's, he's going to make a bargain with the devil. I can't. Mm. It's in this. Sorry, mm. I'm working off of another text. So, it. But he he says that he's convinced that um, Ahab's going to make a bargain with Fidella. Fidella wants Ahab's soul. It's a Faustian bargain. If you know the story of Faust, Faust stole, sold his soul to Mephistopheles to get whatever he wanted. Um, at the end of the chapter 389, Meantime, Fadala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head and ever anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that by the Parsi occupied his stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow, while if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandish speculations were bandied about among them concerning all these passing things. This is all comic. They're talking about selling a soul, and yet it means nothing to these men, because it's happening. And look at the image. Um, and Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow, while if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab. Remember what I said before. Watch the way Melville uses reason to intimate spiritual realities. What's happening in that description? They become one. Huh? They become one. Yeah. I mean, Fadala is taking over. Ahab's spiritual being. Um, the passage you were looking for is on page 386. 386? Yeah. Go ahead and read it. Oh. Where are you? Say where. Um, I think it's sink him. I never uh, look at him at all. Well, I don't know. I just made a note in, my, uh, in the margin saying that uh, mm. Ahab and Fidala make a deal. There's actual sentences, sorry, and I don't have it marked here, but I, um, but he says he, he um, The bargain about what? Kind of towards the bottom? Striking up a swap or a bargain, I suppose. Bargain about what? 
Where are you? Uh, towards the bottom. Of 386? Yeah. I mean, I think this is what you're looking for. Because so, this, this says YDC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. What's the old man have so much to do with him for? Striking up a swamp or a bargain? I said, bargain about what? YDC old man's heart bent after that white whale, and the devil there is trying to come around and get him to swap away his silver watch or his soul or something of that sort. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. This is a Faustian bargain that, oh, think, think, think about this in human terms, that so often our, our wounds and our sense of an injustice done to us puts us at risk because getting back means so much to us that it consumes us. I mean, how often is that a theme of stories all the time? In small and large ways that the grief that we feel over the wounds that we've suffered make us to want to get back so much um, that it takes over us, can possess us. Um, so the first is that um, even though all of the stories have centered on Ishmael and his reflections about things, two things are happening. One is Fadala is um, taking over now turn to the Grand Armada on page um, on page four forty-five. This is a chapter I'm going to come back to because this is one of the most important chapters in the in the book. This one lines up with the shark massacre, and I want to put the two of them together before we leave today. In chapter eighty-seven, Ishmael is describing the path of the ship. They just left the Indian Ocean, they pass into the Java Straits, they're headed north into the China Seas, and then from there out into the Pacific. So that's where they are. And at this point, they're chased by pirates, um, and they'll lose the pirates, and then they will um, hunt a whale again, and, and it'll lead to the Grand Armada scene, which I'll read in a minute. But the important thing to note here is this. They've left the west. They're moving towards the East and Fadala's Oriental world. This is a non-Christian world. This is where, by the way, this is where this is going to take place, the, the, the catastrophe with um, Moby Dick. So symbolically, remember in all great, this is true for Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Dickens, it doesn't matter, it's true here in Moby Dick. Journeys are always symbolic of something. Something happens. Stop, all of you stop and think. You, you all had periods where you've been sick. Something happens usually in our sickness, even if we're not aware of it. it something happens, we change, we're, we feel helpless, we get better, you know. If you move from one place to another, or you journey, you go to a park, always in Jane Austen world, if you go to a, something, on that journey, a change takes place, something happens. It's true here. The Pequod has left the West as we know it. The world of rationality, the world of laws, the whole Magna Carta tradition, um, the founding of America, a democracy, they're entering the East, okay? That's not an accident. Um, we're meant to, to, to understand in symbolic terms, we're leaving a world that's familiar to us, that we think of in terms of rationality and entering into the East with all of its 
cults and spiritual and spiritual religions and beliefs and dark and demonic things, Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism and all sorts of other devil worship cults. And so even though the focus is on Ishmael, we're entering a new, um, a different world, okay? Um, two things to keep in mind. We've been looking at Ishmael as the outcast. Increasingly, it seems to me, by this time, we should be looking at Ishmael in two other ways. Ishmael is a learner. He's constantly learning. And we have to keep this in mind because if we do, it changes our perception of things. He committed himself to the quest in the quarterdeck scene. In a couple of chapters later, remember I read that, that, that opening, I think it's in the Moby Dick chapter, where he says, I, my voice was louder than the rest. I, I was welded with them. He couldn't be more one with them. So at the same time that he's committed, that is, Ahab is in him. He's moving with him. I'm not using that seriously. I don't want to use the word possession, but Ahab is in him. He's committed. What we see in Ishmael in all these chapters is he's learning. So no matter how much he's with this man, something else is at work with him. He's open to being. He's seeing things. And it's important to see that because does Ahab see any of this? Absolutely not. Ahab is just single-mindedly focused on this one thing. Ishmael is finding his place with everything. So the first is that he's a learner, and it seems to me it, we have to begin to see him as a teacher, that he's teaching us to read. And one of the purposes of all these chapters of putting different things together is to help us to see their, that we've got to learn to put these things together and not let any one of these things dominate us. I'm going to use the word Catholic, that, that he, he wants us to see that there is meaning everywhere and we can't isolate ourselves. That, that if, we don't, if we don't approach these things eclectically, if we don't put them together, it's a kind of an eclectical way of reading, that whether we know it or not, we're going to have blinders on. We're not going to see very well. That's why he, is, he keeps referring to Plato. Kant, Spinoza, the Bible, myths, science. He's bringing everything to bear to teach us to see that it, it's only by doing that that we can see the interconnectedness between things. So with that, let me, let me, two last things. When you, as you read, this is what I'd like to ask you to do. When you read, this is a homework assignment. <laughs> You too, Linda. <laughs> this okay. is a homework assignment. Okay. <laughs> you hear the enthusiasm in that voice? Okay. <laughs> I want do this. As you as you just identify the 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 uh, the, the gans, the goonie, goonie, the town ho, the Jeroboam, um, the front the Jung Frau, you know. Start putting the gams around a circle and put Moby Dick in the middle and begin to ask yourself, when I'll, I, I'll, I'll bring this next week, because remember when we did the Iliad, I drew that circle and put all the warriors on it because of what they all showed us about honor? And they were all moving in the direction of greater and greater battles, more important battles. Now we've got the same thing going on here. Melville's giving us a series of gams. These are all people 
um, committed to some enterprise. They're a part of this commercial enterprise. But every one of us is showing some different aspect of the way they enter into it. So what do we learn about America from this larger view of this American enterprise in the way it relates to the mystery at the center of the, the story, of the epic? So don't just pass over the gams. You know, take note of them. If you can, put them in a circle and just ask yourself, what's going on here? Because we will, in, in a couple of weeks, we'll put them together. But I'd just like you to be aware of that, okay? Okay, I just want, I'd like to do some readings to finish up. Turn to page 372, chapter 70. There's, there's, two things that I want to do today. I want to just do some readings that go to this, this theme of Ishmael's openness to being, to show how he's always connecting things. I'm just going to go through some readings very quickly because they all illustrate various ways he does this. And then I want to close with the Grand Armada. I'd like to just look briefly at that scene because it's, it really it has to be set, set against the shark massacre as two radical views of something important to look at in reality. But I just want to look at a few chapters now. Turn to 372. This is the Sphinx chapter, and Ishmael has been looking at the whale on page 372. And he describes it as if he's looking at the Sphinx in the desert and saying, there's nothing in the world that you have not seen at the bottom of the ocean. You've, you've seen everything, 372. It was a black hooded head and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the Sphinxes in the desert. Speak thou vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. Speak, mighty head and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amid the world's foundations where unrecorded names and navies rust, navies rust. He goes on like that. All of the things locked at the bottom of the ocean he has seen. Top of 373. his murder still sailed on unharmed while swift lightning shivered the neighboring ship that would have borne a righteous husband to outstretched longing arms. O head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham. He's the father of Judaism and Christianity. And make an infidel of Abraham and not one syllable thine. Why would it make an infidel of Abraham? Hmm. I think because his knowledge is so vast, so much greater than anything else in the world, it would almost make him not believe in other things. Because there's nothing he hasn't seen, this whale. Now think about what that says about Ahab, because he's very much like Faust, this wanting to know all things and control all things. is very much a part of Ahab's character. Go down, better, um, a ship is, or ship is sighted, it'll lead to a gam. And Ahab says better and better because, remember, he wants to kill Moby Dick and he wants to get news. So he's taken out of his meditations um, in a positive way. Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. It's, it's blasphemous in some way. He wants to kill this whale and he's invoking Paul as if Paul would help him. 
Um, o nature and O soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies. Not the smallest atom stirs or lives in matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. This notion of linked analogies, even Ahab sees it. I mean, it's on this ground that he and Ishmael seem to have something in common. Ahab knows that all things are related. I, I want to say this because it's important to remember, this is a noble man. The only reason he's going after this whale is because he, he's dealing with all these ultimate metaphysical questions. What's the source of evil? How did this happen? Where do these wounds come from? If there's a God, who could produce a God that would, I mean, what's the nature of a God to produce something like this whale that could destroy the way it does? Sorry? Hmm. Could the breezelessness that he's mentioning refer to his single-mindedness? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Do you want to comment on that? Well, nothing, except that it's a different aspect of it. It makes him aware Where? that he is so focused right. and that it's right. in some ways crippling and he's yeah. looking for, it's not going to happen, but he's looking for yeah, St. Paul to yeah, but yes, yeah. But it's not strong enough to, I mean, he, you know the, the reason for the Gams is to learn about Moby Dick and um, turn to 382, the monkey rope. I think I mentioned this, didn't I already? In the monkey rope scene, um, two men are paired and they're tied together with a monkey rope. 382. Um, in 382 we've got a description suspended over the side of the state. Testigo and Dago are at the side with their, with their spears stabbing the sharks to keep them off so Ishmael is protected because Ishmael's in the, wick, the, the whale digging out and Ishmael, I mean, yeah, Ishmael's on board with the other end of the line tied to him. So that's the scene, and it's precarious. And he describes on 382, Tashtigo and, and Dagu almost killing Queequeg down below with their, you know, with their sharp spears. Turn to 381, he says about this perilous condition, um, so strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two. Remember, all these men are isolated. But, and here he is, in a sense, reaffirming his isolation, but connected to another man. He's coming out of that isolated state. That my free will had received a mortal wound to his sense of isolation, his self-importance, and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. How unfair. Therefore I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence. Interregnum means interruption, a break. For its even-handed equity never could have sanctioned so gross an injustice. Yet still pondering while I jerked him now and then, and then from between the whale and the ship which would threaten to jam him, still further pondering I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Here's that analogy again. He's taking this situation and most of us would just be terrified and, and remain isolated in the situation. There's not a thing that Ishmael does that he doesn't relate 
to everything going All of us are in this situation. So we're, every one of us is meant to see, this is going on in my life. It's the value of reading, of poetry. So for the moment, he sees that the two of them once again are married, and this seals his sense that the two of them are married, because whatever happens to Queequeg is going to happen to him. Did I tell you the story? Did I tell you the story about the airplane flight that I had? The, no. No. Oh, I, for the longest time, I didn't want to go on an airplane, and I don't think it was so much fear, although there had to be an element of fear looking back on it. It was really an element of pride that I didn't see in the time. If I had an option of going someplace between driving and flying, I would always choose to drive because I, I had control of the situation. Something was going to happen to me, it would be my fault. The thought that I'd be on a plane and the plane would go down and God would have wanted one of the men on that plane was so shocking to me, I would not fly for such an injustice that I should die for another man. Are you kidding? And then I read the monkey the monkey episode, and I got it just, it was like the bear episode I just described a while ago. And then I realized, what if the person on the plane that God wanted was me, and everybody else in the plane had to go down? Want to take some friends with you? Oh, I'm not flying with you. <laughs> Talk about loyalty and friendship. <laughs> Anyway, it's just one of the ways that, Mel, that Moby Dick sort of, I mean, like great literature, it just opens your eyes to make you see, or each of us see how foolish we are without realizing it. Um, turn to um, page 40910. I'm sorry? 409 and 10. 409 and 10. 410. You guys have a good week. Yes, sir. <laughs> in 79 this really goes to this science question Ishmael is, is taking a perspective that had become well established in the 19th century that you could look at the um, physiology the outlines the structure of a head and be able to read the person's soul by looking at that head. That was an established science. Okay? What was that? What was the science? Here it's here at the bottom of page 79. Physiognomy. Physiognomy. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't reading his soul, it was reading his intellectual character. Yeah, that's, that's his, that's his soul, his intellectual character. The man has an intellectual, rational soul. In 410, he's been looking at this head and analyzing it along those lines, and then he says at the top of 410, but how genius in the sperm whale, has the sperm whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No, his great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is moreover declared in his pyramidical silence. And this reminds me that the great sperm whale has been known to the young Orient world. He would have, if he'd been known, he would have been deified um, by their child Magian thoughts. Um, he had, <laughs> here, this is Ishmael laughing at 
himself and people and modern sciences. Because what he's saying is that the genius of the whale was in not saying anything when you look at all these other sciences who have all this to say and think they're saying something when as a matter of fact it's, it's foolish. Look at, stop and think about it. I mentioned this before and this is one of the things that it seems to me we're meant to take away from Moby Dick. Oh wow, that helped. Um, the sciences. Oh God! It's right there. I know, Doc. I don't want to do. The sciences are residual. Don Callan um, made that distinction in a lecture once at UD. The sciences are residual. They leave things behind as they advance. Hmm. So whatever their artifacts were that contained them get left behind. It's rare for scientists to go back to earlier models to look to see if they could learn from them. It seems to me that's one of the large mistakes in the sciences. I can't tell you how much I regret it because I think there's always something to learn from earlier theories and what happened to correct them. You put them next to each other and it seems to me you learn things. The sciences are residual. They always leave behind and they advance. When people treat the sciences as having the last word, some sense they're not recognizing a truth about the sciences. Sciences will always self-correct themselves. It's part of their nature. They learn. The sciences that we have today will be replaced by others in the next century. New, new discoveries will be made. The more we penetrate being, the more we learn, the more we uncover, the more we self-correct. The sciences are residual. Literature is accretional. It accretes. It gathers. We never leave the past. We just we started this work together with the Iliad. We've got a text. It's a body. It's got a it's a, it's got a physical object. It's contained in it. The literature is accretional. So one of the differences between literature and the sciences is that is that um, we continue. We're, we we like the people in the sciences continue to discover things. We're always trying to learn more. But we learn more by carrying the whole past with us because the whole informs it. You know, I mean, stop and think about that. If anybody read the Iliad in isolation today, would they ever be able to do what I did in this class? Not a way. If you read the Iliad alone, you're going to read it as a war story and miss it. If you read the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, there's no way you can miss the Perusia, the return of the king, and the significance of that. When you put that together, then you've got to scratch your head and go, holy cow. Who does that in colleges today? How many people put that whole tradition? The only college that I know, the only university, is UD. Absolutely exceptional. As we move forward in literature, for anybody who takes it seriously, we have got to carry the past with us. That's why this tradition is so important. That's what we're doing together. So here's another instance of Ishmael laughing. You know, you've got the Frenon phrenologists mm -hmm. who are looking at the structure of a head as a way of reading the inside of a person's character. And he's partly laughing because he knows that, you know, that that's not so. There, I mean, there's something to learn from it, but it's certainly not definitive the way that we think. Um, and admiring the whale because of its silence, it's not saying anything. And, and he's saying, there's a wisdom in not saying something sometimes. I think you all know that, don't you? Sometimes you can be in a conversation and, and say, I wish that guy, or I wish she, 
mm-hmm. and shut up or and the best thing you can do is be quiet um, so once again once again Ishmael's teaching he's showing us these analogies on page 427 I'm just going to read quickly I'm going to um, 427. The honor and glory of wailing, he turns to a number of nations, England, India, um, Greece, and he takes their major mythical stories, Perseus saving Andromeda, St. George in England saving somebody from the dragon, and Vishnu in India, offering himself as a god in incarnate form. He's taking every one of those myths and, and um, presenting them to us, but he's doing it in a way to say, on page 425, that the, the um, monster that Perseus killed when he saved Andromeda, this is in 425, was actually a whale. So that Perseus was the first whaleman. How the lovely Andromeda, the, the daughter of a king, was tied to a rock on the coast, and as Leviathan was in the very act of carrying her off, Perseus, the prince of whalemen, intrepidly advancing, harpooned the monster. He does the same thing with St. George on page 426, that the dragon he killed was really um, a whale. Don't laugh. <laughs> it was really a whale. And on, at the bottom of 427, that Brahma, here, mm-hmm. when Brahma or the god of gods saith the chaste to resolve to recreate the world after one of its periodical dissolutions, because the, 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 the Hindus believe in reincarnation, he gave birth to Vishnu to preside over the work. He's like the counterpart to the word, to Christ. He's the one by, mid, by which it was made. And he's incarnate. I mean, the similarities there between Hindu and Christianity are in lots of ways remarkable. Um, but the Vedas are mystical books whose perusal would seem to have been indispensable to Vishnu before beginning the creation, and which therefore must have contained something in the shape of practical hints to young architects. These Vedas were lying at the bottom of the waters. So Vishnu became incarnate in a whale, <laughs> and sounding down in him to the enormous depths rescued the sacred volume. Was not this Vishnu a whaleman then? Even as, even as a man who rides a horse is called a horseman? Perseus, St. George, Hercules, Jonah, Vishnu. There's a number roll for you. What club but the whalemans can head off? What cl- club but the whalemans can head off like that? Describe his tone or... What's he doing here? Isn't he laughing again? I mean, having fun with this stuff. But also suggesting a truth that there are these great monsters that, that have always been images of something that had to be defeated in order to protect somebody else's good. Um, in 83, he, this is really interesting. After all these stories that I just you know, quickly glossed over, he comes back to this story of Jonah. Why? And he, he tells the story of the, uh, on page 429, a paragraph down, one old Sag Harbor whalesman, chief reason for questioning the Hebrew story was this. 
He says that the two holes on the whale were too small for Jonah to either come in or, or be spewed out of, that he would have choked to death. And if he didn't choke to death, the gastric juices would have dissolved him. So he's using rational arguments to disprove, to say, this is a laughable story, nobody should believe it. Remember what I said, I think I said this last week. Here's St. Thomas. Faith and reason belong to two distinct orders. If you ever, if you ever use reason as the basis for supporting faith, what will happen? It'll be destroyed because the minute somebody comes up with a reason that questions it, your faith is gone. They're two distinct orders that have two very different ends. The problem we're faced with is reconciling them. Ishmael's doing the same thing here. He's got the Jonah story. This is, this is essential to the whole book because Ishmael is Jonah for us. He's a Jonah figure. People read the Jonah story and say, this is ridiculous. This can't happen. If they do that, what are they going to say about the Bible? Ridiculous, right? If this, is, if this is the basis of it, it's laughable. Here's this old Sag Harbor whaleman who gives these rational arguments for disbelieving the Jonah story. And here's Ishmael responding, and he responds to both of them, but take the second one. It is not necessary, hence the bishop, that we consider Jonah as tombed in the whale's belly, but as temporary lodged in some part of his mouth. And this seems reasonable. That is, the, what's the bishop trying to do? He's trying to use reason to protect the story. And what he's doing is just as ridiculous as the whaleman. Because if that's the reason, once you disprove that, I mean, not only you're disproving the Bible, but you're, but you're making it even harder to believe it because you're taking a priest or bishop who's giving a worse reason for believing it. Was that clear? And this seems reasonable enough in the good bishop, for truly the right whale's mouth, <laughs> this, for truly the right whale's mouth would accommodate a couple of whist tables, <laughs> you could play cards, and comfortably seat all the players. Possibly too, Jonah might have ensconced himself in a hollow tooth. But on second thought, the right whale is toothless. <laughs> What's he doing? And what, what else can you do? You either shoot yourself because the world is so ridiculous, or you laugh at it. He's him. He's showing, yeah, he's showing us that, that how, how often people use reason in a way to discredit matters that, that are religious, that are harder to get at. So once again, he's, he's helping us to read, to trust him as, a, as a, somebody who's looking at the world, to learn to laugh at things that are laughable. And, and be careful of the kind of reason that we use to defend something, because if we use it the wrong way, we will actually undermine what we're trying to defend. Yeah? Okay, just last. We could do more, but... I just wondered, looking at yeah. the bottom of 429, if any of the women could say, why is that line of women's clothing called Sag Harbor? You know that? It's, it's, it is an actual place in Maine. And it is a line... Oh, so that's probably where the clothes came from, mm -hmm. Sag Harbor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it has nothing to do with the whale, thank God. I'll never well, wear those clothes again. It's a whaling port. Yes. Except we learn in that other one on, on, um, on right whale, left right whale, or, or the fast whale or loose whale, that, that the head of the whale, when it was captured, was given to the king, and the tail was given to the queen. And his reason, the reason apparently behind it was that 
They took the, the bones from the whale because they used the bones in fashioning the corsets of women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is there an aspect of reality that, remember, the, remember what we said about the epic? The epic is always encyclopedic. The epic, always, Homer, Virgil, Dante. It gives us a cosmic worldview. We learn the whole of things. Here, last, let's do the, just very quick, the, the armada. After they pass through the Sea of Java, they enter um, the Orient. We are now in the Orient. Fittingly, pirates chase them. There's a lawless element here. Pirates are at first time in the voyage, pirates are after them. Once they elude them, they sight a whale and they lower to catch it. And um, um, Queequeg catches a whale on 451, and the whale pulls them into the heart of what Ishmael is describing as this great armada, this great herd of whales. And um, there's nothing to do because they have to hold on to the whale, right? They don't cut the line, they have to get it. Um, and then they, they use these at the bottom of 451, um, and if you cannot kill them at once, you must wing them so that they can be afterwards killed at your leisure. Hence it is that at times like these, the drug comes into requisition. Our boat was furnished with three of them. The drugs are these floats that they build and attach to a line so that when you harpoon the, the, the line to the whale, the, the, the drugs act as a drag. They wear the whale out. Um, so they, they add those. Go on over. Um, to 452. So the whale pulls them into the center of this great commotion and herd. Here, at the top of 452, here the storms and the roaring glens between the outermost whales were heard but not felt. In the central expanse, the sea presented that smooth, satin like surface called a sleek, produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods. Yes, we were now in that enchanted calm which they say lurks at the heart of every commotion, and still in the distracted distance we beheld the tumults of the outer concentric circles and saw successive pods of whales, eight or ten in each, swiftly going round and round like multiplied bands of horses in a ring. And so closely shoulders to shoulder that a titanic circus rider might easily have overarched the middle ones and so have gone round on their backs. Um, they had to bide their time, go down a few lines, keeping at the center of the lake we were occasionally visited by small tame cows and calves, the women and children of this um, routed host. Go down a few lines. I mention this circumstance because as if the cows and calves had been purposely locked up in the innermost fold and as if in the wide extreme of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping, or possibly being so young, unsophisticated, in every way innocent and inexperienced. However it may be, have been, these smaller whales now and then visiting our becalmed boat from the margin of the lake evinced a wondrous fearlessness and confidence, or else a still becalmed panic, which it was impossible not to marvel at. Like household dogs, they came snuffling round us, right up to our gunwales and touching them. 
till it almost seemed that some spell had suddenly domesticated them. Queequeg patted their foreheads, Starbeck scratched their backs with his lance, but fearful of the consequences for that time, refrained from darting it. Go down. Um, he, he sees below the surface these mothers nurturing, nursing, and the umbilical cords, which is going to come into play in a minute. The lake, as I have hinted, was to considerable depth exceedingly transparent, and as human infants, while sucking, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast as if leading two different lives at the time, and while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Boy, this is platonic. Um, Wordsworth would have said, as the infant is nursing, it's, it's almost as if not only having come from the mother's womb that he holds in his consciousness, but having come from heaven, that he still carries that with him. Um, and yet while drawing mortal nourishment, he's still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence, right? As if he's remembering. Wordsworth um, phrases intimations of immortality. Just having left God's kingdom, we still carry that in memory. Even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were a bit of gulf weed in their newborn sight, floating on their sides, the mothers who seemed quietly eyeing us. One of these little infants that from certain queer tokens seem hardly a day old may have measured some 14 feet in length and some 6 feet in girth. He was a little frisky, though as yet his body seemed scarce yet recovered from that irksome position it had so lately occupied in the maternal reticule. Where tail to head and already for the final spring the unborn whales lies like a carter's bow, the delicate side fins and the palms of his flukes still freshly retaining the the plated, pleated, crumpled appearance of a baby's ears newly arrived from foreign parts. Who could do that but a poet? A scientist would describe it differently, right? I mean, Melville's using words in a way to make us feel something more that's not just empirically there to our senses. The, the, they're available to the senses, but the way he uses language makes us aware that there's something more. Um, so we have this image of at the center of this herd, this nurturing impulse between the mother whales and the calf. Mm -hmm. Now set those two chapters against each other, the shark massacre, the shark massacre, which seems to be very masculine, aggressive, fighting, killing, starting out at the whale, remember, then turning on each other, and then finally turning on themselves. We talked about that, right? And here is the maternal side where there's something nurturing in nature, mother's taking care of. Now, what's going to happen just now is suddenly um, Queequeg cries out, line, line, and what happens is a whale um, thrusts itself into the circle with the harpoon line still attached and catching other lines with the spades attached to them. And, and also entangling in his own line the umbilical cord between the mother. So he's thrashing all this about, creating havoc. Now stop and think about this for a moment, because Ishmael says, 454, that even so amid the, the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, as he watches all of this happening, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe resolve round me, deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe, me in eternal mildness of joy. So 
I want to get this straight here. We've got this herd at the center of it, our mothers who are being protected, they're put at the center, so that the whole whale herd is protecting this nurturing instinct. That um, there's this maternal instinct at the center of creation of a mother feeding her calves and the rest of the whale protecting it. And this calm, what he calls this enchanted calm. Into this comes this whale that's been already harpooned, so it's a mess made by man who's wrecking havoc in this piece. So there's a commotion on the outside, there's this with whales and ships and the other ships still hunting, with this one whale coming in, disturbing it, thrashing it about, even putting the life of the child at risk because his, his spade is cutting lines and the umbilical cord. Um, and in spite of this, Ishmael says, that no matter how much commotion is going on, do I myself forever century to sport in mute calm and while ponderous planets of unwanting woe revolve round me, deep down and deep inland there, I will bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. Set this against Ahab. Whatever we say about Ishmael, we can't say, we haven't seen an actual turn yet. But everything about his language suggests a whole different way of looking at the world. There's killing, destruction going around him. And he says, at the very depths of my being is this calm and this joy. So if we set the, the shark massacre and the Grand Amada against each other, it seems to me we see the two extreme views of nature. That there's something in nature voracious, vicious, attacking. It's, it, it, for the most part, it seems male. And at the other extreme, this nurturing aspect that's feminine. And both of them are there. They are part of nature. Um, and Ishmael, in spite of everything that's going on, is acknowledging that no matter what's going on, at the center of his soul is this calm and this joy. So, um, not sure what to say more than that. that um, we're moving towards the climax shortly. They're going to discover, I mean, they will get traces of Moby Dick and begin to chase him. But up until that time, we've got Ishmael, who has committed himself to this quest and who is learning things about himself and nature that clearly is setting him off. Even though he hasn't done anything consciously to separate himself, something's happening to Ishmael. Okay? So let's leave it here. Sorry about the time again. I missed again. <laughs> we'll slow down. Um, um, I'll, we'll get the. And by the way, we'll get the the new the new study guides. The study guides for the next twenty chapters. They'll be out Monday night. So we we'll give them to the class Monday, and they'll be available in the office. Monday night. So if you want to come, if you're here during the week at all, you can go by the office and just pick up a, a copy. If you all, if um, if you pay three or four dollars for the, just to help with this, it would um, it would be helpful. Okay. How are you guys finding this book? It's a lot. I know. Yeah, it's a lot. Good. Huh? I think it's really it's it's really very interesting and it, and it causes you to think. Good. It does. It causes you to think. Yeah. Although you have to read, I have to. I don't know if anybody else does. You have to read it slowly. You really do. 
because while the language is English that we understand, the structure of sentences and things is not the way we speak. Yeah. It's not the way we typically read. Um, and so you have to slow down to understand yeah. what he is saying. Are you, are you, I hope, I, I, I'm probably hoping for some, I hope you're enjoying the humor. Oh, yeah. Ishmael is, is facetious. I mean, he's talking about very serious stuff, but so often he's bringing a wry humor to what he's, because there's all this oddity in the world, particularly the way humans deal with things and what, the way they see and the way they read. So I hope you're enjoying that part. Yeah. Um, very much. Because it's very different from Ahab. Ahab finds it hard to laugh. Mm, he, he can't. Yeah, he can't. Because he's be, full of anger, revenge, yep, revenge. Yep, yep, yep. Revenge. Remember what Ishmael said at the beginning about universal thump. Ishmael knows thumps. He's been thumped, and he joined this quest. He joined it because he's been thumped. But something's happening to him. He's the the world is sort of opening to him in an amazing way. Okay. At the center of the whale is calm and joy. At the, at the center of the herd. The center of the herd. All these whales have formed a circle around the mothers in the middle, and the mothers are feeding their calves. I mean, I just made a slip of my pen. At the center of the W-H-A-L-E and W-H-O-L-E. The whole, the whole, the herd, the whole, the whole herd, yeah. center of the Yes, yes. Thank you. You're welcome, you're welcome. Wow. Yes.